This podcast episode is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. Headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Brotherhood Mutual has a heart for serving the church and keeping ministries thriving. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com. My favorite passages has become a passage out of the book of Acts, where David says, and David served God's purpose in his generation, and then he went on. We've got to understand we're here for a period of time, and we've got to serve his purpose in this generation. And it doesn't say we go on to the brothers and from our country or from our color. We go before that throne of God. And so I think the church needs to put their focus back on what is the eternal truth. The gospel, the mission that Jesus has put us here in the garden attended for him. Not for ourselves, for him. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim. NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. The demographics of our country and world are changing rapidly. We will soon be a country where there is no majority race or ethnicity. In today's conversation, Alex Mendez talks about this shift and what it means for ministry. Alex is the executive director of the All People Ministry for the Evangelical Free Church of America. And he's the author of Embracing the New Samaria, Opening Our Eyes to Our Multi-Ethnic Future. This was a hopeful conversation that encouraged my heart about the future of the church. Here's our conversation. I'm so pleased to have you on this podcast, brother. Thank you for joining us. It is a real pleasure, brother. And I, uh, my greatest claim to fame is five daughters and 15 grandchildren who are multi-ethnic all by themselves. Uh, that, is, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, um, jumping into this multi-ethnic issue, Embracing the New Samaria, it's your new book. There's some buzz that's already developing around it uh, among our staff at the NAA team and elsewhere. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the book and the hope that you have behind writing it? I'd uh, love to. Um, you know, I, I think we're all feeling uh, that America is different. Uh, we're not back in the days of Leave it to Beaver, Joan Cleaver, uh, Archie Bunker, and all of those, even though they kind of bleed into us. But I think one of the things that really struck me seeing those things, and then one time doing a Bible study through the Gospel of John, and I came across a very interesting passage in John 4, 35, where Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, open your eyes. First, he says, are there not four months and it comes to harvest? That's the harvest we're all used to. We know what these people eat. We know what, what they're kind of like the weeds. We know how to water them and all of that. And then he says, but I say to you, open your eyes and look on the harvest. Uh, you didn't work for it. You didn't want it, but I've been working at it. And all of a sudden I saw there's two harvests there. One we know and like, 
one we maybe didn't like or know about, but God says it's a harvest. And, uh, you know, it just really amazed me. And I started realizing we might be missing something really, really special that God is doing even our day when we start seeing these changes going on. Getting to some of your own story and what's formed you, you've already kind of brought about this illumination from reading John 4, but how did your experience as a Latino uh, from the U.S.-Mexican border influence you, influence your ministry, uh, influence even this book? Yeah, that's a very good question. See, I was raised in Laredo, 97% uh, Hispanic. I never felt like a minority. So I grew up with a feeling that I was a majority. And then I go to another country, Austin, Texas. And I seriously had culture shock for two weeks. I mean, those people didn't have time for anything. And, and so all of a sudden, I'm a majority as a minority. And it gave me this uh, insider-outsider ability to see things from two, two different sides, actually. I mean, and also living in Laredo, it's ground zero for the issues that were happening relative to immigration. So this personal experience that you have, you've uh, alluded to what you saw in John chapter four. I I wanna um, tighten the two together and ask you, what, what does the Bible tell us about ethnic diversity? Well, first of all, um, if you look at Revelation chapter 7, we're all around the throne of God prophetically. And all nations, all peoples, all tongues says nothing about ethnicity or color. And uh, so we're all there. And then I joined that with the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I get this prophetic command that this is our opportunity now on earth to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfill or help fulfill what we will see in heaven together. So we see the prophetic, and then we connect it with thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. And I start having a different sort of a buzz about things. This is not optional. This is not opposition. This is the will of God, and it's a good thing. You use this imagery of Samaria in your book, Embracing the New Samaria. Um, Tell us about Samaria in New Testament times and and what you mean by the new Samaria. So one of the things I want to be careful with is uh, I'm not just talking about immigrants, even though because I'm talking about the demographic shift. That is a major topic. But when I talk about Samaria, I'm talking about the marginalized people among us, African-American, Native American, Indians, poverty. But what I'm saying is that that Samaria is growing larger and larger. And when I got my master's in social work, we did a lot of demographic stuff. And all of a sudden you start seeing, they started talking about it in 1980, this demographic shift. And it's been like a slow train coming. You know, I remember when they said in 2003, by the year 2010, Hispanics would be the largest minority. And then by 2006, they had already said that happened already. And by the way, by the year 2050, and then they changed it to 2030, 40, 
two, that the minority would be the majority. And so it's this slow train coming that uh, to a certain extent, we see the ramifications happening now, even as we start seeing um, racial unrest and uh, demographics and immigration, not just here, by the way, this is not just an American phenomenon. This is happening globally. Hmm. And I think we, we somehow or another think that we're being picked on. <laughs> Nobody's being picked on. It is what is, what is happening throughout the world. And so I think we can see that either as a bad thing or maybe God is at work. And like he told the disciples, open up your eyes and see, we can join him mm-hmm. and get in that work with that second harvest. Mm-hmm. So for me, the new Samaria is really talking about uh, the demographic shift. And it's talking about also the unreached and the marginalized. That is becoming a larger piece of what America is about. So these conversations have been, continue to be um, beautiful, but also divisive at times. And our country is divided in so many ways, including racially and regarding immigration policies, among other things. From your perspective, what is needed to bring healing and change? Well, I think this is part of that slow train coming, and I think we've gotten our eye off of the mission and started looking at ourselves. And one of the key words I hear all across America is fear and the reaction to that fear. And so I think the church has turned to politics, to economics, to sociology, to defensiveness, instead of getting on mission with what God is doing. And I think the politics is killing us, and it's not making us safer. And I think it's causing the church to retract from what the mission of God is and and quit seeing it as the opportunity. African-Americans and Asians, for example, are two very different sauces that have deep medicine for us, but lately we've treated them as poisons and thieves. Uh, And it grieves me, and it grieves the Lord. Obviously, the two harvests includes Hispanics and Chinese and Asians, But I think what we need to really realize is these are all people made in the image of God. And uh, we start seeing in the scriptures, especially Acts uh, 17, 26 through 27, where it says, God sets the times and the boundaries. And then verse 7 is so critical. So that people might grow for him and see him and find him. And if if we see that, and if we see that migration has always been an evangelistic and a tool used by God to get people back in touch with him, if we see that and realize we can work with God, uh, then I think we're going to be able to win. But if we're just retrenching and defending and trying to hold on to what we can never hold on, you know, Walter, I think that's the other thing people forget. This is not the end. We cannot recreate the America we grew in. And we need to remember that God put us here to tend his garden. And, and there's one thing that's more powerful than politics, and that is the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew, the Gentile, the Asian, the Hispanic, the poor, the African-American. If we will do the gospel, if we will live the gospel and realize that we're, gonna, we're, we're passing away 
all we can do is pass the gospel baton forward, then we'll do better. But I think sometimes we start thinking we've got to preserve uh, what we had or who we were as a nation, as a ethnicity. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're gone sooner than we, you know, talking about being gone. Uh, I'm 67 years old. And one of my favorite passages has become a passage out of the book of Acts where David says, and David served God's purpose in his generation. And then he went on. We've got to understand we're here for a period of time, and we've got to serve his purpose in this generation. And it doesn't say we go on to the brothers and from our country or from our color. We go before that throne of God. And so I think the church needs to put their focus back on what is the eternal truth, the gospel, the mission that Jesus has put us here in the garden attended for him, not for ourselves for him that is so compelling and obviously alex you speak with deep passion about this uh, and conviction uh, your book and your lifelong ministry have in many ways centered around the idea of christian unity one faith one baptism and one body what does this practically look like i mean will we all start voting the same way will we all attend a multi-ethnic church i mean Help us to see what this means practically. Well, uh, that comes from Ephesians. And if you read the first three chapters, the context is God bringing down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Uh, this isn't um, the force is all around us. This is coming out of a context of diversity and divisiveness. And this is the will of God. That doesn't mean we're going to vote the same. <laughs> that doesn't mean we're going to have the same color. That doesn't even mean we're going to like the same hot sauce. Uh, but what that does mean is that there is beauty in diversity. And actually, we get to vicariously enjoy it even now. And so what that means for me is that we really have got to change how we think about things. We start making religion more and more about us. So actually, for me, I, you know, I think we start playing religion and we start playing God and we start telling him, hey, God, we're doing these things for you. We're doing these festivals. We're doing these Bible studies where we're having people vote like we vote. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the pictures that really helps me is in Isaiah 58. Uh, and I'm a big I believe in revivals, but this revival in Isaiah 58 is different. Uh, it's not the revival where you draw a circle around yourself and say, God, I'm going to be good. It is actually a revival of justice and repentance. You know, they were saying, hey, we had these church services for you and you didn't come. We had these uh, sacrifices for you and you didn't come. Uh, you know, what's wrong with you, God? Get on the program. And God says, is that the fast I asked for? Let me tell you what fast I want. Take care of the poor. Take care of hungry. Take care of the stranger. Take care of the vulnerable. That's real religion. And all of a sudden, when we can get our arms around the, the fact that it's not about us, when we can get our, our arms around the fact that God wants us to reach them, I think that's actually a revival. And I think that's also the salvation of the church. You know what? I think, Walter, I think different people and diversity are, are sent here 
um, as a gift of God. You look at the book of Acts, you see a big argument in, in chapter two between Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. I mean, kissing, kissing cousins. But then you see after the, uh, and you saw a wonderful resolution. They, they chose uh, Hellenistic uh, deacons. But what was interesting is after Stephen was stoned in chapter eight, the Hebraic Jews went and spoke to other Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews went and spoke to Gentiles. And then you see Gentiles going and talking to other Gentiles and the rest of the world. In fact, the first multi-ethnic church is in Antioch. And when you look at who the elders were, you have Africans, you have Jews, you have uh, Cypriots, and, and you've got this the wonderful diversity. No wonder the Holy Spirit, when he spoke up in, in, in uh, Acts 13, 1, 2, no wonder when he speaks up in the prayer meeting, nobody says, what was that? Hmm. <laughs> oh, that was uh, another voice, and maybe, and it is the voice of God. And there's this, when we're open to that, we're more receptive to what God is doing. And we're not always drawing this picture of this is where it's going to come. We're going to have this festival. We're going to have this service. Uh, we're going to have this prayer meeting. And only people who sound like me and talk like me uh, can really have a say. I'm sorry I'm preaching right now. I'll stop. But, but for me, it's a revival. It, it's a revival. It's exciting. It is exciting. You've referred to the passage in Acts 13 of the, the church in Antioch and the ethnic diversity that was represented there right from the get-go. So how does our ethnic uh, identity relate to our identity in Christ? Well, I, I really think, uh, I see ethnicity as a gift. Not for me. <laughs> in fact, my ethnicity and culture never trumps the will of God. You know, there are parts of my culture that I have to rein in and say, that's, that's not in the scripture, but there's other parts of it that actually are a gift. You know, we sleep with diversity every night <laughs> if you're mm. married. Uh, as a counselor, I've come to realize that God intentionally marries us to people that see things different from us. Mm. And I think those of us who've learned how to live with that in a good way have learned that's not a curse. That's a blessing. My wife sees things I'll never see. Uh, she has the ability to look around the corner and I'm stuck looking at the wall. I can fight that. Or I can trust that. And, you know, I think uh, one of the things after 44 years, we've learned that's a godly woman. I trust her. She adds to me. She completes me. In some ways, uh, in the same way that God brought our wife and says she completes you, in some other way, diversity completes us. Diversity, the different diversity I'm convinced that different ethnicities see different elements of God that we missed. Asians have a sense of honor. Um, they, they value their older. I just was speaking at a Native American uh, conference, and I started realizing some very interesting similarities. Hispanics and Native American Indians have this sort of God consciousness. It can tend towards a negative in a superstitious element. But they're never going to say, I don't feel God. I don't, I, there's no God. I mean, there's just this sense of there is a God. So 
one of the things that I see is that diversity not only helps us see different facets of God, but they're also the force multipliers in terms of compelling the gospel beyond ourselves. In chapter 2 of Acts, they never could have done what they did in chapter 13. I mean, in chapter 10, Peter is having an argument with God about whether he's going to walk into Cornelius's house. And, you know, God has to three times, one time, two times, three times, you're going to be out. But, you know, that sheet comes down and, and Peter starts saying, no, God, I've never eaten anything. I mean, we start getting so sanctimonious so quick. Now, give me that uh, chicharrones right now. You know, give me that oxtail. Give me, give me that good stuff right now. There's something spicy over there. And by the way, People are, different people can be really, now I have to be careful. I've got this amazing thing about loving people, but not everyone does. So, you know, when I was pastoring a church, there was a Korean lady in there and she let us hug on them, kiss them. One time I was going to go speak at a Korean church and she saved my bacon. She said, pastor, in your church, we hug and kiss and we let you. But when you go speak to those Korean pastors, don't touch them. <laughs> far away from them handshake greet them but don't go and hug and kiss them and i'm telling you what i i would have just made a total fool of myself i would have alienated everybody so i think it's i think diversity is great they help us see things about god they help us see things about each other so no wonder the diversity propelled the gospel through the book of acts mm -hmm. this is a, a beautiful picture i mean who wouldn't want to learn more things about God, have fresh ways of viewing and encountering God? But oftentimes there's hesitancy. Do you see that this hesitancy among Christians in America to embrace those who are different? And, and where does that come from? Uh, you know, I do see that a lot. And I feel like it's interesting. We have information overload. And I think social media has taught us, look for little bites. 140 characters. Uh, but life is not like that. Um, you know, when I'm listening to something different, like new music of, of a certain kind, my first reaction is, Ugh. but, you know, uh, the first time I started hearing rap, I just didn't like it at all. I mean, you know, I'm glad you like it. But when I started hearing some Christian rap, wow, uh, some Christian hip hop, all of a sudden, I start looking beyond the normal things that I'm looking for in terms of Latin jazz, and I start hearing the words. And once I start hearing the words, so I have to go through that barrier, and then I'm starting to really enjoy it. Well, I think the same thing is happening today. Everything, life is fast. People want it in bite sizes, uh, and they want to have more time for themselves. We're in this hoarding uh, phase in America where we are hoarding our time, we're hoarding our service, we're hoarding our money, and we're trying to keep out anybody that's different. And the end result of that is going to be death, because we were never meant to hoard what we could not keep. If that were the case, Jesus would have stayed in heaven, not come. He came to serve. And that's what he left us here to do also. There will be time for rewards and treasures but this is not that place. Revelation 4.4 says, this is not the rest. This is that time when we get to show God 
that we love him, that we follow his example, and that we reach out to people that do not know Jesus. Uh, there's a very interesting little book, I'm sorry, uh, but it's, it's by Tom Rayner, The uh, Auton uh, Autopsy of a, a Deceased Church. And he looks at studies of several churches, and he boils it down to several things. But one was churches that are not externally focused die. They start spending more and more on themselves. Churches that are reaching out and seeing out and expending themselves live and prosper, not, not necessarily financially, but they reproduce themselves. Mm. So I think people have got to really get on mission with God and understand fear is no excuse. In fact, fear is a result of not really focusing on God. You've talked a little bit about your own process of building bridges, uh, whether it's listening to music or engaging with a, a, a different ethnic church. Um, so what can pastors, what can church leaders, what can community leaders uh, do to bridge cultural gaps in uh, their ministries and in their local neighborhoods and communities? Great question. Um, I was at a multi-ethnic conference and there was a lady there who was there and uh, she was an expert in cross-cultural communication. And, and I sat next to her and said, hey, give me a tip. She says, tip number one, shut up. <laughs> I think we've got to, you know, I'll say it a nicer way. <laughs> James 1.19, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Mm -hmm. uh, I think instead of talking, we got to do more listening. Mm -hmm. um, John 5, where Jesus says, I look to see where the fathers at work and work there. I think the biggest thing that our pastors need to do is model listening and, and uh, learning. The second thing they need to do is really read up. I mean, I, I read so many things about different cultures. Uh, I, um, reading and uh, studying helps me discern what's the fish in the bone, you know, eat the fish, spit out the bone. And in every culture, in every book, including books from my own seminary, there's, there's fish and bones. And I think leaders need to be able to model the ability to hear the good and dispense with the bad. And I think leaders need to start training their leaders in a church how to discern. And so I don't think it really helps from saying, don't listen to that person. There's one bad thing in them. Now, I think we've got to teach our people how to be discerning. But there's also the pastors need to teach their churches to be missional. And so what's happening in my neighborhood? Uh, you know, it's amazing how people close their eyes to what's actually happening around them. But I think pastors should do a demographic study. And really, they don't even have to do much of one. Just go look, Google the website for your local uh, high school and look at the diversity there. That's actually what's happening. And when you start seeing that, you start realizing, especially over time, my neighborhood may be changing. And so there was one pastor where I coached him and his neighborhood had gone over 50% Hispanic. And I said, you know, if you would just kind of open it up a little bit, you might be able to double your impact in this community. And sure enough, they, they brought in a Hispanic pastor and within a year, uh, that church was over a hundred. 
And what started happening was really exciting because they thought they were so good at relationships. And then they started seeing the Hispanics staying 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour after church and start. All of a sudden, there's this interplay that goes on. So number one, I think pastors really have got to model studying and listening and encouraging their people to eat the fish and spit out the bones, trying to find the purity and only have their people around that is a loss. We've got to teach our people how to be discerning and then giving them an appetite for reaching those people that are around them. They're not the enemy. I believe they are sent by God and they can renew the church. Everything that you've just said, you know, while true for pastors and, and church leaders, is, it's equally true for congregants. It's equally true for Christian businessmen and women, for professors, for those working in uh, all sectors of society who want to take the gospel and make it applicable in uh, their areas of responsibility, this kind of curiosity, this eagerness to curiosity. eat the fish, spit out the bones. I mean, this, this is really a posture that all Christians could have uh, as we approach really complicated issues. Uh, you know what? In, in fact, I intentionally wrote it, the book that way. So in the back of my mind, it kept saying, um, not for seminary, and they need to go from the elder table to the communion table to the kitchen table. Mm. I mean, this kind of stuff needs to be brought down to where a mom and dad can talk to their children, mm. uh, to where cell group leaders and, and elders and pastors can communicate it. So the, the questions in the back of each one of the chapters are intentionally made for a cell group, for example, to ask themselves a question. And there's practical challenges. Uh, for example, uh, we live close to a university here, and I would always tell my daughters, bring any of your friends from another country here. We'll take them to the grocery store. We'll buy them anything they want to buy so that they can cook their food for us. But we want them to bring maps of their country and walk them through that. So I intentionally tried to come up with a sign. We're not coming here to evangelize them. We're coming here to experience. You'd be surprised. Mm. The impact that has on an immigrant. When, when you feed them, when you honor the food they cook, when you uh, let them walk you through their country. There was this one uh, Chinese guy who heard from my daughters that I like hot food. And he brought this little Gerber jar with these purple flowers. And he said, I hear you like hot food. Uh, he's my daddy. I mean, that, that hot sauce, those flowers, I don't know what they were, crushed glass, nuclear, whatever. I'm telling you, my mind and my palate was expanded. And I was crying like a baby. And he loved it. And he got saved. You know, um, I think we've gotten so enamored with the theology that we've got to know. And, and it, it, it may end up being that, but really people want to know that they're cared for and loved and understood and welcomed. And that's the biggest opening. In fact, I, I use this terminology in the, the book, the GC3, I call it. The great commandment builds and leads into the great commission, which should result in a great community. I think we need to lead with the great commandment instead of the great commission. Mm. And uh, we need to, people to understand 
we're, we're called to be fishermen. That doesn't mean we catch fish all the time. And uh, we're called to spread seed. That doesn't mean something grows every time. So I think we really got to encourage our people to enjoy life, uh, get to know people, have different experiences. Don't be afraid of what God has created and is made in his image. So, I, and, and I think churches need to really understand their solution. They are the solution for the community. People should be able to walk by the church and say, you know, I don't believe in God, but what those people do over there, I believe in that. And maybe all we've done is moving them from the scale from a negative 10 to a negative three. Hmm. And, you know, remember the scripture that says one man plants. Another man waters, but God causes the growth. Mm. And, uh, you know, Walter, another thing that I've been noticing lately is, uh, and Asians are the, the highest uh, ethnic group that marries outside of their race. Hispan uh, 26%. Hispanics are 24%. African American. There's a lot. In, we need to consider the next generation. I'm telling you, in three generations, people are going to be laughing at the church because of our inability to understand. Um, you know, we've caused a problem with our, our students because we've sent them to churches that are diverse, schools that are diverse, and then they come to our churches that are not diverse. Can you imagine the dissonance that causes? Mm. Uh, so... You know, we, we've got to cut that out or we're going to lose those generations. So our generation, my generation, has got to start understanding we're fouling things up for the next generations. Hmm. Anyway, that's just an extra thing. No, thank you, Alex. It's really, really helpful um, and challenging. And, and certainly at the NAE, we want to continue in this work of building bridges. Um, one of the difficult building Bridges project is um, in the area of immigration reform. Mm -hmm. So the, the NAE board passed a resolution in 2009 uh, on immigration uh, and immigration reform. And we've been advocating for policies that respect the image of God uh, in every person that seeks to protect the unity of the immediate family. Same time, guaranteeing secure national borders, ensuring fairness to tax payers, but also establishing a path toward legal citizenship. I mean, it's a complicated set of things on the policy level, but you've been pointing at some really profound social and gospel issues of um, what we gain when we pursue uh, reaching out to those who are different. So Alex, you've been a strong supporter of these principles and you've noted that the future generation uh, and their perception of the gospel is at stake if we don't achieve some change in this area, the disconnect between what they're seeing in schools and, and at the church. What are some other things that may be at stake if we don't achieve um, some reforms in these areas? Well, I want to make one observation related to something I said before. This is not an American phenomenon. This is global. But I want to come back and say at the same time, America has been at the forefront of immigrants legally. Uh, no other country matches us. Uh, and I think the NAE uh, and, uh, has been saying for a long time, we're not saying 
uh, we want to break the law. We believe in the rule of the law. What we're saying is we want the process to be fair and we want it to be legal. In fact, we've had a Republican president that came up with this, pro this deal called Comprehensive Immigration Reform, George Bush. And when President Obama came in, he tried to have the same comprehensive immigration reform, which is seal the border, um, fix the law, because the law is not as clear as people think it is, and then make a pathway for those that are here. Decide if we want them. Uh, actually, America does want them because they want their labor. Uh, so there's a de facto, de jure, whatever you want, immigration. What we need to do is start making that um, clear. But also, we need to understand the major loss will be to our country because immigrants bring hunger and drive and creativity. The major loss will also be for the church because they bring a vitality that has been historically proven. Right now, Hispanics are a major engine of church planting growth. In fact, Ed Stetzer did a study uh, that we helped fund and several other denominations showing that Hispanics are planting churches faster and cheaper. They're not always waiting to get all the chairs right. Uh, they're out and about it. And so there's this, uh, there's this partnership that immigrants can give us. Uh, we need to really understand the, the fairness of the thing also. We want them here. We hire them. Uh, and then at the same time, we turn around and say, get out of here. Okay, we need to really get our act together on that. Do we want them or not? If we do, and I think we do, then let's, uh, then this, this, this de facto immigration amnesty uh, needs to really be examined and brought to light and, uh, and realize it's not only bad for them that they're here outside of the light and being pushed into the darkness, it's not good for us as a country to be winking our eye at something, to be hiring them when we say we don't want them. So I think there's, there's one thing about America that I've always loved, and that's let's play by rules. Let's be fair. Uh, America has always been welcoming to people who are in danger. You know, here's one of the things that's really important when you think about it. Immigrants are self-selected to be risk takers. Risk takers are the engines that drive new business and creativity. And, and I'm talking about refugees also. Not all, the not all the people that are in their country come as refugees. Some people want to do something about it. And so uh, I really get that some re most refugees would like to stay in their country. And, and I think we as Americans need to understand that would be their preference. But the whole issue of migration it's not only got it work, but it's also the thing that has made America a wonderful place. I mean, Albert Einstein, and I could go down the list of, of refugees and immigrants that have come and made this country a better country. And they are and they will. So uh, I think we've really got to have a reality check and, and really separate the politics and the economics from the mission of God. Uh, politicians can agree. They have agreed. But we need to understand that there's a, a little bit of duplicity at times that's going on. 
when the Republican could say, hey, we want comprehensive remission reform. And then the rest of the party says, we don't want to give them a legacy issue. And then the next president is a Democrat, uh, comes is running the same bill and the Republicans say, we don't want to give them a legacy issue. So we've got to really understand that the only thing that we can really count on with clarity is the mission of God. And God has never changed his mind on that. And, um, and so we've got to understand that's the one constant that has never been changing. And, uh, you know, I'll just end with that verse. And I'm not, well, I'm not, you may have another question, but Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew, to the Gentile, to the Muslim, to anybody that comes. The gospel is the thing that gives life and light and peace and shalom. Not politics, not economics, not excluding people from neighborhoods. This book is not just about immigrants. It's about anybody that's been marginalized, that needs to be brought into the church and and their secret sauce needs to be added to what who, who and what we are. That is really compelling. Again, you have added so much to this conversation on ethnicity, on immigration, on secret sauces of ways in which we encounter God. And you've consistently brought us to the mission of God. I'm so grateful for that. Our guest on today's conversation has been Alejandro Mendez. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, a very special thanks. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.